Good morning, Woods Edge. I want to welcome and introduce Chad Robichaux, who will be speaking today. Chad and Kathy Robichaux were part of the Woods Edge family. I can remember way back before I even met Chad that I'd see this muscular guy all tatted up and I heard that he was this champion fighter with the mixed martial arts. Later as I got to know him, I found out that he had done eight tours with special ops in the Middle East and that his life and marriage were a mess. But God rescued Chad Robichaux and his marriage in the most beautiful way. And then he called Chad to begin a ministry to help our nation's military veterans with the alarming problems of divorce and suicide and PTSD. When that ministry started, none of us had any idea of the impact it would have one day on thousands of veterans who got rescued from PTSD and how many marriages were saved and how many suicides were prevented. God has used Mighty Oaks in an incredible way and is still using it. Now, Chad will probably be telling you about some of these things because I have asked Chad to focus more on telling his story and what God has done rather than on going through a passage of Scripture. This ministry, Mighty Oaks, is now based out of Southern California, but their roots are right here with the Woods Edge Church family. And would you please give Chad and Kathy Robichaux a very warm welcome back to their church home in Woods Edge. Thank you guys. Good morning. Thank you so much. Good morning and happy Independence Day. Uh, even though Pastor Jeff's not here, thanks Pastor Jeff and Gail for the kind invitation and church staff to continue to be here uh, almost every year to get to come back and speak to you guys. This is very special every time we come back to Woods Edge because as Pastor Jeff said, this is ground zero uh, for Mighty Oaks. Uh, this is where it all began and this God used this church to not only save my life, but to uh, restore my marriage and my family and to uh, launch the Mighty Oaks ministry. In fact, it was uh, eight years ago on this platform right here in a Wednesday night prayer service that Pastor Jeff uh, prayed for Kathy and I, commissioned Mighty Oaks as a ministry, and launched us off into the unknown. And we had no idea where we were going or what we were doing, but God did have a plan, and, uh, and thankfully, because we didn't, uh, we just knew that we needed to be obedient to what God called us to do. And uh, it's been amazing um, that this church started off believing in us without that plan, without knowing what God was going to do. And, uh, and through the eight years, this church has just continued to support us and believe in us and, and support us. When I say support us, I don't mean just writing checks financially. That's great. But also through prayer and encouragement. And that's been just such a blessing to Kathy and I as we, as we lead this incredible ministry. So I want to say thank you to all of you and uh, let you know if you're new to this church or don't know anything about Mighty Oaks, we're a recipient of this church's amazing heart uh, for the nations and for the world and to, and to build the kingdom of heaven. And so thank you. You should be proud of being part of this amazing church and Pastor Jeff leading it. Uh, and I'll, I want to give some updates on where Mighty Oaks is, but as I do that, I want to do it through the, through the message of not our story, but the story of Christ in our life. Before you do that, do that can we start in a word of prayer? please? Lord, I'm so thankful for this church uh, as I begin uh, my message this, this, this morning at the previous service, Lord. I just was so overwhelmed with emotion and uh, to see uh, where it all started for us, Lord, to walk by the rooms that Kathy and I were counseled in, to... Um, to see the, the places where people prayed over us and, and, uh, and where you launched this ministry right here on this, on this pulpit, Lord, and, uh, and to, uh, to be part of uh, such an amazing community 
of, of, of believers and kingdom builders and world changers, Lord. I'm just so thankful to be part of that, Lord. As I share this message today, Lord, the, the message of, of your story through the life of, of Kathy and I, Lord, I just, I just pray, as I don't know the words that each person here needs to hear, I know you do. And Lord, so I pray you put those words on my heart and, and through my mouth. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. All right, guys, so every good sermon should start with a war story. And so I'm going to start with one for you. A lot of you have heard me speak before, but as Pastor Jeff said, we're going to start from the beginning. And so one of my favorite stories I always, want to, I always love to share is about the time I was in Afghanistan. And as Pastor Jeff said, I was very privileged to serve as uh, Marine Force Recon and Special Operations. And I uh, worked for what's called a JSOC Task Force, Joint Special Operations Command Task Force, which is kind of the, it's the premier uh, Special Operations Command for all of, all of special operations in the military. And so it was an extreme privilege for me to serve uh, in those eight de- for those eight deployments in that capacity. Uh, my job was a little different than most when I worked in Afghanistan. I wasn't in a big military unit in uniform with a bunch of other vehicles or assets and resources. I was typically with one other person or with local Afghans working in civilian clothes. There's um, a picture of me. I'm the guy without the black glasses. Uh, so... We, that's kind of how we looked most days in civilian clothes, and we drove around uh, in uh, normal vehicles and didn't have much for weapons. Uh, the, this particular day I want to tell you about, I was with one other teammate, and he was a Navy SEAL, and, and uh, the two of us were in, in civilian attire. We were in a civilian vehicle called a Toyota Prada, which is like a Toyota 4Runner, and we were driving into the eastern side of the capital city of Afghanistan named Kabul. We're, the road we were driving on is called Jalalabad Road, and we we noticed behind us a, a pickup truck. It was a Hilux pickup truck, and it was loaded with people that looked like uh, they were stereotypical Taliban. They had big beards. They had dusty clothing and tribal clothing on. They had a AK-47 assault rifles, an RPG, rocket-propelled grenade launcher. These guys looked to they were up, like they were up to no good, and uh, they, in fact, they, they were a, a bunch of them. And to give you an idea of how many were in the back of this truck, we, as a joke, I love to share, uh, how many Taliban can you fit in a Hilux pickup truck? So the answer is one more, right? They're like piled, <laughs> piled in this truck, and we're like pretty sure they're following us. And so I want to do a technique that I learned in my training called deviating your route, which means I'm going to be able to confirm if they're following me or not. And so as I'm on Jalalabad Road, I took a right and started making the block. And as I got back to my original route and turned right back on Jalalabad Road, they turned and followed me, which indicated to me that they were in fact following me. But it also let them know that I knew they were following me, which started a chase. They started chasing me, and we got in this pursuit. And I made a decision to go into the city of Kabul because I knew that city really well. I didn't live on a base. I lived in that city. And I figured, knowing that city, I could lose them. Uh, Now, if you think the traffic's bad on Rayford Road or Woodlands Parkway, which it is, it has nothing on third world traffic, Kabul traffic, right? So count your blessings that you have red lights and, and stop signs to control traffic because Kabul does not. And I'm trying to get away from these guys and the traffic's congested and I'm banging in the cars trying to lose them. And I get to a major intersection in Kabul called Masood Circle. And as I got to that intersection, the traffic began to stop. And all of a sudden, I didn't have anywhere to go. The truck somehow got around in front of us and cut us off. And I remember when it stopped, a few guys jumped out the back. But my most vivid memory is the passenger opening the door. He was clearly in charge. He had AK-47, and he, he locked eyes with me, and he gave me a hand signal to stop my vehicle. Uh, that was a bad situation. In my training experience, this is called being, being stuck on the X. So the X is a, it's an ambush site. It's a kill zone. A couple of things you learn in training about the X is, number one, you have to be able to recognize that you're on the X. You've got to know you're in a bad situation. And number two, you have to get off the X. You can't stay there. You have to move, or something bad is going to happen. Kind of simple logic, right? You've got to move. And so I'm so thankful for military training. In fact, I had trained 
for this exact scenario before. Every year we go to Bill Scott Raceway and crash cars and train for scenarios like this. And this was a roadblock situation. And I had to do a ramming technique. And so I did exactly what I was trained to do. I hit the gas. I aimed my vehicle towards theirs. And probably my favorite memory, memory of Afghanistan is when I smashed into that vehicle, seeing little Taliban guys fly out the back of that truck through the air <laughs> and knock that truck out of the way. And I had a perfect pathway to get off this intersection. But there was like one more obstacle, this this Afghan placement, he's like 100 years old, he has his perfect uniform on, and this is, he's owning this intersection. And he has his whistle, and he's giving me a hand signal to stop, too. He's blowing his whistle. Beep, beep. Guys, there was no way I was going to stop. I was going to run this guy over, and I was heading towards him. And what I love about Afghans, the reason they survived for thousands of years of war, is they always jump on a winning team. So when he saw I was going to run him over, all of a sudden he's on my team now. He's blowing his whistle, stopping traffic, directing me off the intersection, and actually probably <laughs> saved our life that day. And we got, we got off the intersection that day, and, and uh, you know, this guy, I don't know where he is today, but he saved us. But I can tell you this, if we would have stopped on the suit circle that day, if we would have stopped on the X, we probably would have put up, put up a heck of a fight. But the truth is, we would have likely been killed or taken. And I'm here to tell you this morning, uh, as a combat veteran, you don't have to go to Iraq or Afghanistan to find yourself on the X in life. I'm sure everyone in this building right now, and there's a lot of you, can think of a time that you've been on the X. Maybe you're on it, on it today. In life, we're all going to find ourselves on the X, and the, and the question isn't if we're going to. It's when we do, what are we, we going to do? In the ministry of Mighty Oaks, working with many combat warriors, struggling with post-traumatic stress disorder, the veteran suicide epidemic of 22 every single day, uh, many warriors have found themselves stuck on that X, and they have to do one simple thing. We all have to do one simple thing. Make a choice. We have to choose whether we want to stay in the X in our life and die, either literally or metaphorically, or if we're going to get off that X and move forward into the plans and promise and purpose that God has for our life and to the very lives that we were created to live. I'm glad God didn't just create us, but he actually created us for a purpose and has a plan for our life, and it's a good one. In Jeremiah 20, 11, he says, For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. This promise, God's word, uh, is, is true despite with the things we may face in this world. That promise of, of a good promise, a promise of a hope and a future, and, and is, not, is not dictated on whether we have hardships in life. It's a promise despite the hardships we're going to face in life. Now, we're all, like I said, we're all going to face, face X's in life, but when we do, if we could press forward knowing God's promise for us, knowing his plans for us, we're going to find victory in those battles. I wish I could say that I always moved forward when I found myself on the X or, or that I knew or even trusted or even knew the promises of God, but I, that's not the case. In 2007, I came home from my last deployment in Afghanistan, and I found myself on that X again. I was diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder, and uh, my life was beginning a downhill uh, spiral. Uh, I didn't follow those two simple rules, however. I didn't want to identify that I was on the X because of my pride or shame, whatever, uh, whatever it was. And because of that, I didn't choose, I didn't make a choice to get off the X. I, I chose to stay there, and I want to emphasize the word chose. I chose to stay there. I made that decision, and I, and I chose to stay there for a period of almost three years, and it almost cost me everything. My, my hardships in my life, my problems didn't begin in Afghanistan. Um, I think many military service members who come home and struggle, their problems don't begin in, in combat. Uh, maybe a lot of us grew up uh, like, like myself in, in some pretty rough childhoods. My, uh, my family is a three-generation Marine Corps family. Uh, my son, Hunter, who many of you know, is in Afghanistan right now serving as a third-generation Marine. 
I, I served as a Marine, and then my father served as a Marine. My father came home as an infantryman from Vietnam. I don't know what was available for him, but I certainly know whatever it was, he didn't take advantage of it. And he suffered with a lot of the same problems that many of our service members struggle with today. He was a very angry man. There was a lot of alcohol abuse in his life, and uh, even drugs at, from time to time. And there was a lot of physical abuse in my home. And, uh, and I don't mean spankings with a belt. I mean fist to face uh, while we were children. And mainly me and my brother. And if you guys ever been around a dysfunctional home or have been in a dysfunctional home, you know the siblings get very close. And so my brother and I would take the brunt of that physical abuse and we became very close and, and leaned on each other during those times. And we had a plan that we would join the military one day and uh, escape that lifestyle, have a clean start at life. And we both grew up in southern Louisiana. We loved being in the water and swimming. And so the best job for someone that loves to swim in the water is being a Navy SEAL or recon Marine. And so we wanted to be in some type of special operations. And we were 13 and 14 years old. We started swimming and running and preparing ourselves to do that job at that young age. Unfortunately, a year into that, uh, when I was 14 and my brother was 15, tragedy hit our family. And my brother was, uh, he was shot and killed. And uh, for me, he was the closest person to me at that time in my life. And so it was extremely devastating. What I had of a family uh, disintegrated and and uh, I went into a very deep isolation, but I didn't lose uh, sight on that goal to become a recon marine and, and uh, go into the military. So I continued to run and swim in my isolation. Uh, I, I stayed in martial arts, which is something I had done my whole life, and, and just really focused uh, kind of inwardly on that. And when I was 17 years old, I met a Marine Corps recruiter named Staff Sergeant Brown. I was, I was already living on my own at this time. I wasn't going to graduate high school. And I'll be forever grateful for Staff Sergeant Brown for helping me get in the Marine Corps, again, without even a high school diploma. Today, I have an MBA. I don't know how to spell an MBA, but I got, I got one. <laughs> and uh, and I, I'll be just so thankful that man for giving me that chance for that clean slate of life. And I recognize that it's, at a young age of 17 years old, I recognize the opportunity I had, and I totally embraced that clean slate. And, uh, and I wanted to be a recon Marine so bad. And I tried out that first year, and it's not an easy job to get into. The attrition rate is over 80% still. And for someone that young to make it in, I was very fortunate. And I, I recognize that. And I worked with some of the most amazing people who mentored me into my professional adult life. And, uh, and I loved that job. I loved doing that job. I trained to do my job in, in combat. But it was, this was 1993, and there was no wars going on at that time. And so I kept training and doing all these crazy schools, met Kathy, got married, we started our family, I'm training and training and training for war, and, and I know some of the ladies in here are probably wondering, like, why would you want to go to war? Like, the only way I know how to describe it is if you, like, have a really nice dress and you get all dressed up, but you don't have any place to go. But that's what it's like being in the military. You train and train and train. You want to go. Like, you want to, and so I want to go. I want to do my job. And uh, unfortunately, it would come at the high cost of September 11th, and and I remember when those planes flew into the World Trade Center buildings, I knew in that moment, I was assigned to 3rd Force Reconnaissance Company, Special Operations Unit at that time, I knew my life was going to be different. Uh, I think everyone in the military wasn't going to their commands like, oh my gosh, are we going to war? Everyone was like, hey, what's up, sir? Like, when are we going to do this? The military was motivated, and everyone wanted to go and, and, and retaliate for 9-11. And uh, that, was that, that was the attitude I had, and I wanted to deploy, but it wouldn't be until you know, 2003 when I got accepted on the JSOC task force. And got everything I'd asked for, eight deployments. I mean, I got to do exactly what I wanted to do, and I'm very thankful for it. I, uh, when I went to Afghanistan, I would have said that I was prepared. Um, we talk about in the, mil in the military uh, resiliency, what resiliency looks like, mind, body, spirit, being mentally tough, uh, being physically tough, being uh, spiritually tough, 
and I had to wear Christian stamps on my dog tags, so it meant I was spiritually tough, but I didn't know what that meant, in fact. Uh, in fact, uh, if I could be honest, like, I went to church back then, but if I would take my wife to church, it was because I wanted a wife that was going to be godly and, and faithful and all the vir- things you wanted a virtuous woman. And uh, I took my kids to Sunday school because they could learn things and become disciplined and I'm not going to have to beat them so much, right? All the things you wanted a parent. Uh, but I, like, was not going to engage beyond just going to church on Sunday because I thought Christian, Christianity and Christian men particularly were weak. That's how I viewed it. And so I get to Afghanistan and I have to make this decision, this distinction between do I want to be a warrior and do this difficult job as a warrior or do I want to be a person of faith? I felt like I had to choose. And uh, let me tell you, uh, if I could point out this to the men, there is no bigger lie of the enemy than that. And somehow we have to choose between being men of God, between our Christian faith, between being spiritual and being a warrior. If not for men in this world, who, who to stand up and fight for the most important things in this world if not for men of God? I wish I would have knew that because in that moment, I felt like I had to make a decision. I felt like I had a choice to make, and I choose, chose to put God on a shelf and figure I could do that maybe later when I get older. That choice left a giant hole inside of my heart that over the next years, I would fill with hate and rage and anger and bitterness. In fact, I, like I said, I didn't live on a base. I lived in an Afghan community, so my first exposure to Afghanistan was was meeting these families and eating dinner with them and playing soccer with their kids and learning what the Taliban had done to them, the grotesque and disgusting things that these people would do to women and children, uh, particularly little boys and little girls that, uh, that are you know, under 10 years old. And these children, I was like, my heart was just like, just disgusted by, by these people. And, uh, and, and, the, and I worked in a command that had this very kind of Viking war culture mentality and just crushed the Taliban. And, and uh, the Afghans I worked with, former Northern Alliance guys, they hated the Taliban the most. And so it was kind of infectious and contagious to feel that way. And, and that intensity and that mindset really made us successful at, at doing our jobs. It worked really well in Afghanistan. Where it didn't work well was coming home and uh, being a husband and father and Mr. Rogers, the friendly neighbor. Like, like I couldn't be that, uh, I flipped that switch and be that. I was still an angry, intense guy when I came home. And that's all, I'm always ashamed to say, but it's important for me to say, that my house, my home was not a very happy place for my family to be. In fact, they, they were probably not safe in my home. And that's, again, it's shameful to say, but it's just the truth. Um, I, would th- I would throw temper tantrums like a 15-year-old boy that wasn't getting his way, punch things, uh, break things, punch holes in the wall. Um, I'd scream at my, my children like, and my wife like I was a Marine Corps drill instructor. I mean, that was kind of how my home was. And uh, my, I remember one time I was going to come home from a... Deployment, my little girl, my Haley, who some of you know, and you know that she's very opinionated. That's just who she is. She still is. She's very opinionated, and she didn't like the icing on her cake. Just a little thing. And some, for some reason, I flipped out and grabbed a, little, a handful of my little girl's birthday cake, and I threw it against the wall and destroyed my little girl's birthday party. I remember thinking, like, because that was not an uncommon behavior for me. So I remember thinking in that moment, though, like, what kind of person does something like that? What kind of dad destroys a little girl's birthday like that? And so that decision, instead of correcting my hate behavior, I just started isolating myself from my family. I started distancing myself. Between deployments, I'd stay busy. I'd be gone as much as I could. And, uh, and I'm like, I could fix this later on after Afghanistan. I'm going to be busy for a couple of years. Kathy's a great mom, and she's going to take care of things. That's kind of my mentality. Deal with it later. And, uh, and I just pushed it aside. Eventually, those, those, uh, those symptoms of anger and frustration start to manifest in these physiological symptoms of stress and anxiety. I had heard of people having these problems before, but I thought this could never happen to me. Um, 
and, and, and it wasn't something we talked about where I worked. My arms would go numb. My face would go numb. Sometimes I'd feel like my throat was swelling shut and I couldn't breathe. Um, I, I, I have these moments where I felt like I had a thousand pound weight on my chest and I was going to have a heart attack. And I knew these were signs of anxiety. And so I knew if I said something, the guys who I worked with would think I was weak and I would probably lose my job. And so I pushed it down and kept, kept trying to push forward and just do, do my job and uh, get through it. Uh, it worked for a little while, but those symptoms, symptoms began to get worse. Uh, some things happened uh, on my deployment where I had these 10 Afghan guys that worked for me, and they were, uh, they were all killed. Um, and some people may think, well, they're Afghans, they're not fellow Marines or your teammates. They were my teammates. They were my brothers. I worked with them for three years. I lived in their homes. Uh, they would have died for me, these guys, and I, and I would have died for them. Um, again, I, you know, I was very close to these guys, and I, I took it very hard, and I felt very responsible. And not, not only that, but the events that unfolded to allow that to happen made the, oper- the operation that we were part of uh, very, very, uh, the, the stakes were very high. And I knew I was in kind of imminent sense of doom, and that my behaviors, looking back, showed that, you know, I believed that I was in this imminent sense of doom. I'd go on these missions, and, uh, and I would write little notes to write one to McCarthy, telling her, hey, if, you know, you're okay to find another husband, to move on. Hunter, you're going to have to be the man of the house now. All these notes to my family, not like what if notes, like this is going to happen. I need to leave, leave a message to them. I put them in the lid of my suitcase because I knew my personal effects would make it home. I come back from the mission. I take those notes and throw them away because I was scared anyone would find them. And uh, so this is kind of the state of mind I was in. The last mission, the very last mission I went on was two weeks long. I was, I was alone working with uh, some local nationals, uh, no other U.S. service members. And because of that, uh, I, I came back and I almost had this, my symptoms had progressed to where I had this thing that I learned now is called disassociation, where my mind almost seemed detached from my body, almost like a bird's eye view of myself. That's how much stress that I was probably under. And, uh, and then I would wake up out of a fog, I'd, I'd forget things. And, uh, and so I almost woke up out of this fog and this whole two-week mission and realized that I didn't remember half of it. And not only was I putting myself in danger, but I was putting other people in danger as well. And so I had to speak up and say something. And when I did, I was brought home. And just as I suspected, I was put before a clinical psychologist and I was diagnosed with PTSD. Um, I didn't even know what PTSD was at the time. Um, I, but the symptoms uh, were, were very real. The only way I know how to describe the level of panic I was in was if I, if I were to be like my ankle was handcuffed in a, up to a pool drain and the surface of the pool was like, you can see the air and you're fighting for one breath of air because you're drowning, but you never drown. You're, there, you're like that 24-7, like just desperate, like dying, but you just body won't die and you just can't escape that situation. That was the level of panic. When I was inside, I felt claustrophobic. When I was outside, I felt the reverse of claustrophobia. I felt very vulnerable. And, I, and on top of all that, I felt extremely ashamed that I failed in a job that I thought was so important for our country, for my team members, and I, I felt like I had completely failed. And so my wife and my counselor were trying to find something for me to do uh, to snap me out of it. And, and uh, they recommended that I get back into jiu-jitsu, Brazilian jiu-jitsu wrestling, uh, something I did. I'd say I did it since I was little, but I'm still little. I did it since I was, yeah, so I look big up here, but I'm, <laughs> I did it since I was five years old. So I did it my whole life. I was already a professional fighter and I was undefeated. So I was doing really well. Here's some pictures of what that kind of lifestyle looks like. And uh, so they talked me into going to those mats and training again. And the great thing about getting those mats and training is I felt like I found a cure because you can't think about Afghanistan and grapple because if you do, if your mind's not focused, you're going to get 
you're going to get hurt, right? So you got to be focused, and your buddy's going to beat you up if you're not paying attention. And so while this was really good for me, I totally abused it. You can have a medicine that's good for you, and you can abuse the medicine, right? That's what I did with this. I still love jiu-jitsu. I train almost every day. I'm a third-degree black belt in Brazilian jiu-jitsu. And in fact, I taught a seminar yesterday. Some of my probably teammates from Texas are here and here today. And, uh, and I think it's a great sport. And in fact, ministry is really hard and stressful. So when I have a bad day at ministry, I go to a gym and I find like some 19-year-old stud and I choke him out. And I get, <laughs> that's therapeutic. And then I go back to the office and share. It's really easy to share the gospel when someone's about to pass out or die. So, <laughs> so, but instead of using this to get well, I hid in it. Some people are hiding a, a bottle of alcohol. You know, they won't deal with their problems and you know, become alcoholics or, drug, or abuse drugs or have other bad behaviors. For me, while I, this was, I was successful in this and while it was helpful, it was the place that I hid and didn't get well. And I did that for three years. I invested a lot of time into it, and I, and I did pretty well. I, I ended up being 18 and two as a professional fighter. I won, a, won the Legacy uh, FC World Title Belt right here in, in Houston. I fought in all the biggest, like, biggest shows on Showtime and pay-per-view and all those things. And, and we had a lot of students at our school here. So on the outside, it looked like a huge success. I mean, we had a school right here on Rayford Sawdust and, uh, and in Magnolia. Between those two schools, we had almost 1,000 students. And so it looked like a very successful life, and I wouldn't have been dealing with these problems. But that was a, really a fake facade of success. Underneath all of that, I was still having, I was hiding the fact that I was having panic attacks, that I was constantly uh, just being set off and triggered into these writs of, fits of rage, uh, particularly in my home. And my home was still not a happy place for my, my wife and children to be. Many nights, uh, I'd spend sleeping in that gym or at a friend's house or in a, one of my kids' bedroom. Probably the loneliest place my wife and I would say we've ever been is not being apart while I'm in Afghanistan, but being in our own bed with our backs turned towards, towards each other in dead marriage. Uh, we felt our marriage was over, and uh, we were just going through the motions and running this business and pretending, pretending everything was okay, but it wasn't okay. It, it, took, it didn't take me long to start walking outside of our marriage and relationships with other women and, uh, and end up in a full-blown affair, sitting, sitting down with my family and telling them that we were going to get divorced, that life was going to be better. They weren't going to have to hear the fighting anymore, right? That's the typical excuses people try to give to divorce. Uh, it wasn't going to be better. Our kids were devastated. And we chose to do it anyway. My wife, uh, my wife had filed for the divorce. We sold our home. We signed two separate leases on apartments for 12 months each. And uh, we were pretty committed. But my wife and I had two very different reactions. My wife came to this church uh, seeking family, fellowship, and help. Um, every church I stand in, I always stand in a podium and look. And here it's this morning at the first service. I was really emotional standing up here. Because I look at this wall. And people tell me how she would stand on that wall right there, not just on Sundays, but during the week, and she'd be praying for me. They said she would collapse crying. I couldn't even stand up crying, uh, praying for me. I, I, I've asked her since, of course, and, and what could you be praying for me when I was doing this to you? She said she would pray, God, let me see Chad the way you see Chad. Let me love Chad the way you love Chad. Let me forgive Chad the way you forgave Chad. That's what she was praying for me when I was doing, totally betraying my family. Uh, meanwhile, uh, I'm a... I'm like in this bachelor pad, like it took me like three days to set it up, really cool and like party on, like I, you know, I don't have to deal with this woman anymore that doesn't understand me and deal with, deal with uh, all this extra stress in my life and um, I had this fight on Strike Force and Showtime at Toyota Center and I was really focused on this fight and when you're in a fight like that, everyone wants to be in your corner, you have a lot of people around you and when that fight was over and I, I won that fight, I remember being in that Toyota Center and you know, it, 
ended up being like almost 10,000 people in this, in, in this arena. All those people there, and not one of them was my wife. And I remember that thought of that thinking, uh, her not being there, she had always been there before, been mature leader before, and her not being there really made me start to think. And I went back to my apartment alone and started thinking about uh, the things in my life, how I blamed everyone. Everyone's an idiot. And it's true, right? There's a lot of idiots out there, right? It's like, it's not, you, when you get in the car and leave here, you'll see. Right? So, but like in my situation, I blamed everyone. I blamed my dad for my childhood. I blamed people in the military. I blamed people around me that, I, that didn't understand me, my, mainly my wife. Like, you don't understand what I've been through. You haven't seen what I've seen. You don't have to deal with this. And, and, and like putting it on everyone else. And I realized the common denominator was me. I was the problem. And when I came to that conclusion, instead of saying, okay, I'm the problem, I need to fix the problem, this thought came over me that my family might be sad without me, but they're going to be better off. They may be sad, but they're going to be better off. Unfortunately, that, that uh, hopeless thought finds a home in the hearts of 20-plus veterans every single day. And many uh, outside of the veteran community, our country right now is all-time, uh, all-time high for suicide in our nation right now. Um, and many don't know that because the news cycle is hijacked by politics. And it's a problem in our country. It's a problem in our world. And a problem in the veteran community. I came to that thought. They're going to be sad without me, but they're going to be better off. And I was sitting in my closet with my, my family's pictures on the floor. And it, very shameful to say, but my family's pictures were not in my apartment where other people could see it. They were in my closet where I could hide them from girls that would come over there. And I, again, it's totally a shame to say, but that's where they were. I put them on the floor, and I'd have my Glock 22 pistol, and I'd put it to my head, I'd put it to my mouth, try to build up the courage to pull that trigger. And, I, and I, I'm not sure if I had the courage to actually do it because I didn't, but I can tell you what, um, what probably stopped me. And it was the thought that my son, Hunter, was the only one with a key to my apartment. And, uh, and he would have probably been the, either one to find me or let someone else in, and I didn't want my son to find me that way. And, uh, and so there was a moment where I called Kathy. I don't recall this, but she does, um, like most wives, recall, recalls all the details. And, and I guess I called her, and, and I, was, I was super fran- frantic, she said. And she came over. And when she came over and knocked on my door, I was in that closet with my pistol in my hand. And for some reason, uh, she had yelled that it was her at the door. And for some reason, even though she would have never went in there, I actually hid that pistol under a blanket like a kid being ashamed of something he was caught doing. And I answered the door, and we got in this argument. And in the argument, she asked me a question that radically changed my life. She asked me how I could do everything I did to become a recon marine, training for these deployments, doing all these crazy things I did in the military, to train for these fights, losing 35 pounds of weight, and the amount of discipline it takes to train for these fights. And and, and do, do all the things I did in my life professionally. It's like, how could you do all of that? And when it comes to your family, you'll quit. Now, I don't know about the rest of you men in here, but to me, there's no more soul-cutting word than to be called a quitter. But she was absolutely right. I had been successful in professional things in my life when it came to the most important things, being a husband, being a father, being that young 17-year-old kid that raised his hand and said, I want to do something important with my life. I quit on all those things, including my own will to live and my own health. It was time for me to make a change. I didn't know how, but I knew I couldn't do it with the people I was surrounded with. I needed some, and I knew I couldn't do it alone. And so she introduced me to a man named Steve Toth, who was the elder on call here at Woods Edge. And when I met Steve Toth at a Starbucks coffee shop uh, right near Panther Creek uh, nearby, I had a perfect plan of how to fix my life. It was really good, guys. It was, uh, it was for the military guys, it was like a five-paragraph order, and I slid it over to Steve, and I'm like, check this out, because I wanted him to show it to Kathy, right? So that's what I wanted. I didn't want to have his advice. I just wanted him to be part of my, my plan. And he, he tapped on that paper, and he said, I'm not going to, he said, you're going to end up failing, and I'm not going to waste your time, and I'm not going to let you waste mine. If this thing doesn't have anything to do with God, God, I can't help you. And uh, 
at that moment, I tried everything. I tried the, I tried the counseling. I tried the pills uh, for PTSD. I tried the MMA and jiu-jitsu had professional success. None of those things worked. And so it was time for me to try something different. Um, in fact, that's one of our mantras at, at Mighty Oaks. If what you're doing isn't working, then why not try something different? And so in that moment, I trusted Steve's lead. I surrendered my life to Christ. And beyond that, Steve mentored for me for an entire year. He discipled me. And uh, through that process, I discovered that all these things in my past, Afghanistan, my childhood, all these things that were tragic that had happened to me and that I experienced, those things didn't lead me to be in my closet with my pistol in my hand. What led me there were the choices I made in response to those things. And I never lost control of the ability to choose. And as cliche as it may sound to some people, in that moment I realized I didn't have, my le- le- I didn't have to let my past define my future. I could choose a different future moving forward. And in that process... Uh, I, I chose to come to this church, surround myself with the right people, men like Steve Toth and Sammy Powell, who's right here in the front row, uh, who met with me um, uh, for several, several weeks, months maybe, and on Tuesday nights, uh, teaching me about the Bible and God's truth. Uh, Pastor Jeff Wells would meet, meet with me, and just heading in the right direction with the right people, aligning my life with the life God intended me to live. Through that process, I found restoration in my family, I found hope for the first time, and I found what I think I, I desired my whole life. And in fact, what I think everyone's desire, desire is, is to find purpose. And without purpose, we crumble because we were created to have purpose. Mark Twain says it like this, the two most important days in a person's life are the day that they're born and the day they find out why. When Steve Toth introduced me to life that I was created to live, I found out the why. And it was to be here today, to share the story of, of, of Christ uh, with, with each of you, the story that he's... Uh, that he had in my life. And, uh, and we had a deep burden in our heart to take what we had discovered and share it with others. It was like if we were dying of cancer and Steve gave us the cure, we felt obligated to share it. And so we wanted to do that through Mighty Oaks. And, and this church believed in us to do that. And like I said, we stood right here on this, uh, on this pulpit and this church commissioned us as a ministry without that plan, without knowing what to do. But God knew exactly what to do. I look back now while we were so, so unaware of how to do what we did, the work that we have been able to be a part of has been so amazing and such a blessing. Uh, Mighty Oaks Foundation has reached over 100, I've, I've spoken to 110,000 active duty troops with the message of spiritual resiliency to tell them that they don't have to wait till they're getting the, in a closet uh, with a pistol in their hand and decide whether they want to live or die, that they can make that decision way in advance. That they don't have to decide whether uh, Christianity is masculine, masculine or not, that they could be men of God and be the most effective and combat ready warriors on the battlefield through making a decision. 110,000 we've been able to speak to We've, uh, we've have our legacy programs, which we have a picture of. We've, uh, we run 30 of these programs a year now, uh, totally free to active duty to the veteran community uh, and to spouses, 100% free, including travel to these programs. We've had 2,713 graduates uh, through that program and, uh, and being able to serve these warriors uh, and, and fight that epidemic of suicide and divorce. Guys, I wasn't the only one that was dealing with this. The suicide rates are still over 20 a day. The divorce rates are, are up to 80% of combat veterans on, on many military bases. This is a problem. We'll be able to bring the solution through this ministry. One of the other things we get to do is we get to uh, give books that we've written on uh, resiliency and spiritual resiliency to our warriors. We've given away 85,000 of them. And uh, we have books, these books at our table back there. One's called The Path to Resiliency to Marine Corps. I've spoken for four years now at Marine Corps Boot Camp to these young recruits. And when you go to Marine Corps boot camp, the only thing you're allowed to bring is a driver's license. And so we're able to give them this. It's like doing prison ministry. They'll take anything you give them. And, uh, and so, yeah, so it's, it's pretty awesome that the Marine Corps allows that. 
And so we have a book table. I want to point it out so, to you guys before I wrap up the message. Uh, you can grab that book back there. Uh, this book is an, un, an unfair advantage, uh, mainly my testimony and Kathy's testimony of what God has done in our life. A lot, it's a lot of biblical insights that inspired me. Uh, cool thing about this book is it's being made into a motion picture movie, and Woods Edge is part of the script. I've already got to read the script, so Woods Edge is part of that. Um, and so de definitely grab a copy. We may run out. If they do, they're available on our website. Uh, one more thing is we do our gala in Texas every year uh, for, for uh, Mighty Oaks. And this year we're going to be doing it on November 16th. We have information at the table in the back. And Congressman Dan Crenshaw is going to be a speaker, uh, not only as congressman, but a retired Navy SEAL as well and a Purple Heart recipient. Amazing man. And, uh, and then the most important thing, any veteran here or, uh, needs, needs Mighty Oaks programs, then... Uh, the program's totally free. Grab a flyer, and we'll get you in that program. Uh, if you don't know, if you're not a veteran, you don't know a veteran, take one anyway, because you never know when God's going to cross your paths with someone, and you may literally save their life, save their family, and change their eternity by having a resource to point them to, and uh, to have somewhere to point someone that needs help to. Uh, local uh, veterans that are that are want some a local place to meet. Mighty Oaks is an outpost here that meets weekly on Tuesday nights. Uh, Dustin and John are in the back, and their team of uh, of guys that are are here. And uh, you can meet here at Woods Edge on Tuesday. So I just wanted to point out some of those things and then get back to uh, the message. Before I, actually, before I do, the most important thing uh, that God restored, I love Mighty Oaks, by the way, but the most important thing is my family. And I want to share a picture of my family. And, uh, and I'm so thankful this church uh, for giving me this. For those of you who, uh, who know Hunter, uh, Hunter's in Afghanistan. And there he is. He looks like he's dressed up for Halloween to me, but he's actually serving our nation, and, and uh, he's out patrolling and doing actual combat operations all the time. He gets back by Thanksgiving, so guys, please be praying for him. Um, I want to wrap up with this. God's promise of hope and restoration is not reserved for combat veterans. It's for all of us. It's for you. And there's a million ways in this world that you can be hurt, that you can get off track in life, but I'm convinced there's only one way to get well, and that's through a relationship with Jesus Christ. Right? And... Uh, and I, I pray that uh, you, as you face the excess in life, you'll know God's promise and, and truth for you. In Jeremiah 29, 11, for I know of the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. Can we pray? Lord, I'm so thankful for this, this church, this amazing community. I'm so thankful uh, for your truth, that as we face the hardships in life, we find ourselves in the excess in life, Lord, that your plan and promise uh, over, over, overpowers anything we may face, Lord. If we could just trust in that and step into the lives you were created to live, Lord, we know that we're going to find victory and ultimately find ourselves in the lives that you were created us to live. Lord, I just thank you for that truth. I thank you for this church, Lord. And I just pray over each person here that they have a blessed and, 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 uh, and, and joyful Independence Day. In Jesus' name, amen.